Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by Jeremy Goldcorn, who I once described as, and uh, will now describe even more emphatically as the potty mouth prince of Peking punditry, <laughs> man who uses in his everyday speech more expletives than the normal person uses adjectives. No, only on this podcast, yeah, guys. Yeah, man, you're never going to live down that rant. I refer, of course, to the epic Goldcornian rant of our episode on, on uh, called Charlie and China or China and Charlie. Anyway. Jeremy, yeah. do you do you think much about the future? <laughs> do you, do you? What, what kind of a question? No, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a very relevant question. So I'm, I'm thinking. I do I think pro- about the future a lot. Okay, yeah. so I, I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you more of a flying cars, cold fusion, world peace, poverty solved kind of guy, or are you sort of more a bleak and fucked up, dark dystopian kind of guy? Like many uh, kind of nerds of my generation, Blade Runner is my favorite film. So right. I think that probably answers the so question. So you like the, you run the <laughs> I, and I live in Beijing. I mean, <laughs> Blade Runner, Beijing, Black Mirror. Right? Yeah, uh, you haven't seen Black Mirror. Yet. I haven't yet, but, okay, but it, it sounds it's, right. <laughs> it's really good. It's won considerable critical acclaim, and and the popularity of it suggests you know the zeitgeist of the time that we live in, which is one that which where we we only we really kind of only do techno dystopian fucked up future right i mean well we look around <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And, and yet i look around i mean i live in beijing too but i you know i view the, the the surrounding countryside from another hilltop which is out in you know in in haidian district and uh i i would say that the people that i work with walk into the office building with their with sunny you know with big smiles earnest embrace of, yeah, of i mean you you work in elysium whereas i'm like down in la with uh, LA know, is gorgeous. You, you know, know. <laughs> LA, you not know what LA is. No, like? I'm talking about the film Elysium. You know, oh, you okay. live in the the, the space station oh, up okay, there in the sky. Right. You know, I thought you meant literally where all the rich people live. Uh, anyway, it's very I mean, nice. The anyway, reason that all this, let's talk about the future. So, <laughs> <laughs> let me let me read you a, a quote here. Um, then I let's see, see if you if you agree here. This is from um, the author Michael Spector, who writes for the New Yorker. We don't have the same relation to progress that we used to. We talk about it ambivalently. We talk about it with little ironic quotes around it, quote unquote progress, right? Yeah, you, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So that 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 quote comes from uh, a a tremendously good book that I have just finished by the author Anna Greenspan, philosopher based uh, at in Shanghai. Uh, and in teaching at NYU, the NYU program down here. Uh, she is the author of this terrific book called Shanghai Future, Modernity Remade. It's a book that combines a fascinating historical account of Shanghai's recreation and uh, the stunning rise of the city uh, with you know the, the seamy other side of it as well, and very in- insightful philosophical meditations on conceptions of time itself, of futurity, of modernity, of the urban. It's a great book. I highly recommend it, and I warmly welcome Anna Greenspan, how are you, Anna? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. So let's let's jump right in and, and talk about your book. I mean, because that's what we're here to do. Um, you open with something I think it was just incredibly gripping in the in the whole preface to it, the way you set it up, right? You set up talking about two essentially world's fairs, right? Of course, the Shanghai Expo in 2010, and then the New York World's Fair, the most probably iconic world's fair. Give give our our listeners a kind of uh, a, a tease of what what it was all about. I mean, what's the contrast here? I mean, and and what's what's remarkable is the similarity between these two visions, right? So yeah, I arrived in Shanghai in two thousand and two, and shortly after that, uh, the city was awarded the World Expo twenty ten, and so for the whole time, I had 
was in Shanghai, I experienced this countdown to this uh, epic event. And the city was really reshaped in this very extreme way for uh, the expo, not only the giant expo site itself, but the entire metropolis was kind of remade. And the whole idea was that the expo was going to be the moment in which Shanghai was going to show itself to the world. Uh -huh. So uh, the kind of uh, echo of the Beijing Olympics. Right, um, coming out party for the neighborhood. We had the so. same, yeah, same, yeah, same, 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 yeah. Same, same, but different. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but the, the World Expo is a strange event because it was an important, a really crucial um, celebration of modernity uh, through um, the late 19th and 20th century. Um, but since at least the 1960s, no one really cares about the World Fair. And right. so when Shanghai was like, we're so excited about this epic event, everyone else in the world hadn't really hadn't heard of it. And when you told them, didn't care and didn't really understand why Shanghai was so um, enthusiastic about it. And it seemed to me um, when I came and, and this sort of whole... Um, flavor of the fair and the energy put into it really was about a project of building the city of tomorrow, which was what the original world fairs were about. You right. know, the world fair is where you first saw electricity, where you first saw um, air conditioning, you know, all the uh, innovations of, of modernity were shown at the world fair, right? There's a, there's a tremendously wonderful part of one of my favorite novels, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, where uh, years later, after the fairgrounds are about to be torn down, the two protagonists actually sneak into that very pavilion. That we're, we're talking about the city of tomorrow, uh, you know, the, the miniature models. It's just, un, uh, it, it, it's already during a time where that cynicism has set in, and it, 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 it's, it so juxtaposes kind of their... Um, still kind of boyish believe and these are people who draw comic book heroes right uh, so of course they, they still kind of believe in it uh, it's, it's 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 wonderful uh, yeah so the fair really has all that kind of flying cars exactly. and world of tomorrow type of futurism is really embodied in the fair and so when I came to Shanghai and I came you know having finished my PhD in England you know where there's a lot of cynicism and uh, I kind of was really taken aback, like, you know, isn't, isn't modernity over? Aren't we in the postmodern world? How is it that this is uh, still existing and flourishing? And, and what's going on with this? So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote, yeah, I mean, they, 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 there's this expectation, I remember you quoting, so that, that they'd be relegated to the toy box of history, right? All these the sort of ray gun culture. Uh, I get that. Um, there was one comment that you wrote down from a commentator named Virginia Postrel. I, I, I jotted it down. Uh, it said, China can't figure out why we don't love their World's Fair. They'll learn. Right. I mean, that's just completely the attitude that, that was. Right. So I think that the idea that sort of sparked the book was that, okay, so uh, China's obviously undergoing many of the conditions that... Um, Europe and North America underwent in their sort of height of modernity, mass urbanization, industrialization, and all these things that we are familiar with. And so it's no accident that they also have the attitudes of a sort of future embrace. Right. So does that then mean that they will then f like 
uh, follow exactly in the steps that that we've seen before. So that that so China is behind the West, and it's doing what you know we in the West have already done, and we we know how this story plays out, and we'll just watch it happen, and you know soon enough. They'll realize that you know the、they'll、future、learn. isn't so <laughs> cheery, and yeah. So your answer to that is no. My answer to that is,、um, you know,、really. because I'm sort of philosophically minded. My answer to that is that's a really、um, simple or、uh, not very interesting way of thinking of how time works. Like, if you are embracing the future, what exactly does that mean? And is the future some point on a line? That you know we are,、uh, you know beyond, and China's before, and you know. So what does it mean if you think like that? What does it mean for your attitudes of the future? And and I think that、um, modernity, of course, is one of these words that people argue about. But for me, it really is a time concept, right? It's a, it's a. How can it not be? Right. So it's an attitude of like being in the present on the cusp of the future, and so.、Um, Yeah, I think that. So that's a sort of philosophically. Yeah, I mean, you set out to do this very ambitious thing, where you, you're kind of trying to、uh, suggest that Shanghai, and by extension, the Chinese have a different conception of time itself, one that isn't linear. That's I think you use the word coiled.、Uh, that you use, you use、um, I mean, a lot of a lot non-linear.、Um, That that's probably the most challenging idea I think in it for the Western reader to bend his mind around.、And、I confess I had a little bit of, of of trouble with it. Can you break that down for us a little bit? What is it? What is then a Chinese conception of time, and and how is that rooted in in Chinese historiography? How is that rooted? I mean, and part part of I think what's really interesting and and maybe the most accessible point of entry into this idea is how China is, or Shanghai specifically, its conception of modernity. Is very much rooted in a past,、right. in you know the the past of of its cosmopolitan apogee, right? The, right.、Um, just right before the Japanese invasion. Right. So,、um, yeah, like I definitely don't want to say that there is a you know linear progressive time that belongs to the West and a cyclical、uh, stagnant、uh, time that belongs to China. That sort of narrative or, or dichotomy. It's too essentialist.、Um, it's, and... it's too essentialist, and it's just not true. Of course, there's lots of cyclical time in Western cultures, and there's linear time embedded, for example, in sort of ancestral genealogy in Chinese culture. So it's not that you know, it's not some sort of simple dichotomy. However, I think that traditions are constructed. Yes. And Chinese modernity, especially as it was、uh, constructed or or is constructed with the May Fourth Movement and the Thinkers of the May Fourth Movement, sort of at the center, did sort of construct that that narrative that、uh, modernity in China、uh, requires an adoption of a progressive time from elsewhere. And this is Marx's vision as right, well, right, right? right? The Marxist vision of the Asiatic mode and the dialect of history belongs to the West, etc. So,、uh, you know, I think. The idea of coil time or the spiral of time is really interesting because it sort of is neither the sort of stagnant cyclicity nor a sort of linear progressiveness. It kind of diagonalizes between those two forms, and I think that we can see that, as you say, the most、uh, 
um, apparent way is in Shanghai. And Shanghai, uh, you know, as I said, is just very much about its ambitions to be this future city, to mm -hmm, be mm -hmm. the 21st century New York, to be the center, you know. So it's, it's all about that. But that is very much bound to this nostalgia, this deep nostalgia for what it sees as its golden period, right, of, um, you know, from the late 1800s till uh, 49. And um, that, but what's interesting about that nostalgia is it's not a nostalgia for uh, simply a nostalgia for a past. The past is futuristic. It's like when we were the future, when we were cosmopolitan and global and modern. Uh, and so that dynamic of a future that's nostalgic for a past that is itself futuristic is something I think you see everywhere in Shanghai. Right, exactly. It's like the, the prevalence of the Art Deco thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, and, and, and it's almost, it's, 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 it's unique in the world, I mean, as far as I can tell, in that um, it, there was this abrupt moment at which that came to an end, and it was frozen. I, I visited Shanghai for the first time in 1981. It was a fucking backwater. Right. I was there again in 1986, and then again in in 1991, and still, I mean, this was all pre pre previous to 1992, and when it all really started to happen, and I mean, I couldn't believe what what a, uh, I mean, how left behind it had been. So, so the, the what's really interesting about your uh, the structure of your book is you start off talking about Pudong, right, and Pudong serves as kind of a, a yang in, yeah. in 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 the narrative. Um, and there's a lot that's that's very silly about it. Uh, and then the, the next maybe, maybe just explain because not everybody's that. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to. Say, I just want to just quickly. Lay so out Pudong the is the skyscraper part opposite the old Bund that that's everybody right. knows of old Shanghai. Right, right, right. Which Sometimes you need somebody like to economic. say shit quickly, right? You know, to explain special economic zone. The layman made a special economic zone late in, in And you know, there's this narrative that says it was just you know a farming village. It wasn't, of course, but then there's the the, uh, the second part of your book goes into. Uh, and uh, it's which is sort of the yin of, 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 of the story. And then third, you look at the periphery of, of, of and then um, wrap it up very neatly. Um, let's talk about the, the Pudong bit, um, which I think is, is really interesting because here you introduce us to the great city planners. I mean, to, to Le Corbusier and then to, uh, of course, Hausmann, who did the, the grand uh, replanning and reconstruction of Paris. And uh, you also look at, of course, New York, uh, which was, um, God, whose name is, is, is... Robert Moses. Right, right, right. Moses, yeah. Moses right. Um, and you, you compare this to, to Pudung, which wasn't designed with, with a single master plan. It was kind of ad hoc and, and weird. And, and, and it kind of sucks, right? It, it, I mean, let's let's face it. It's not like a. Li I mean, it made all the mistakes of a Beijing. Right? Looks good from the other side. Exactly. I think. <laughs> that's, uh, that's and from on top, on top, if yeah. you get, it's, it's uh, get up to high. Look good. Yeah. But, but you know, nobody really wants to live there. And if I mean, like, no, no, no European or no Westerner uh, thinks that that's a better city vibe than. than yeah, than I mean, you know, uh, so I work at NYU Shanghai, and we have moved since you guys visited. We are now on the Pudong side. They've built their own ah. buildings. So oh, you moved to Pudong. We moved right. to Pudong. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm experiencing it more closely. Um, I think what is the tragedy of planned cities is there's no street life, right? Um, there's no 
street food. There's no street markets. Um, and so it, it has this scale and inhumanness that makes it a kind of shitty place to, to live in, right? right? Um, you know, around NYU, there's no food. Um, it's like where I work. I mean, it's like that. It's, it's just shitty. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Pudong's a really interesting case. Like, uh, as I say in the book, uh, Mori, who built the now second uh, largest tower in, in the Pudong skyline. Uh, not Jin Mao, but... Uh, the Shanghai World Financial Shanghai World Center, World Financial Center. Yeah. Um, is a follower of Le Corbusier. Right. Um, so, you know, and I think there are ideas in these modernist planners that are interesting, especially the idea of the skyscraper sort of city within a city, right? Like, what are you going to do if you have 25, 35, 40 million people living in a city? And so Corbusier's answer to that is you make it extremely dense in, and you build up in order to leave room yeah, for green space. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea, you know, in some ways lives again and I think has some interesting aspects to it. But uh, the problem in the realization, I think, is the sort of death of the street. So uh, I guess what I found surprising was that there is no real master planner then for, for Shanghai. What, how, how then did Pudong take shape? I think there was this idea, right, that um, Pudong is going to be this special economic zone and uh, particularly like the beginning of the CBD um, that is going to attract investment. So it really had this idea of being a sort of financial center. And then kind of quite comically, I think, they invited all these very famous um, architectural companies to do master plans. Uh But then in sort of China style, they basically said, okay, well, that was a great design competition. No one won. And we're just going to take elements of all the ones we think we like and, and <laughs> build it ourselves. Um, so it, you know, um, and I think that is how a lot of architecture is done here, right? If you're an architect, you got to be careful about doing yeah. design competitions, right? Right. But, I mean, Beijing is similar. I mean, look, Beijing's so-called CBD, the heart of it is a, the intersection of the third ring road and Chang'an Boulevard. That the is the most hostile, the most inhuman, hostile inhuman, inhuman environment. Right. That's the heart of, that's the, like, geographical heart of what they call the CBD. It's impossible <laughs> to cross from one corner to the other. I mean, it, it's, it's, no. just, it's a labor. I mean, it's... Oh, it's, it's, anyway. It's really, <laughs> no. I, I have to wonder, though, I mean, how much of this is really tied to kind of the, the technocratic um, culture of, of China, which, I mean, well, it may be fading the, the leadership, but the, the cult of the engineer, um, I, mean, I think, to my way of thinking, it's very dominant in the Chinese psyche. I mean, in, in your preface, you talk about how for everyone from the hippies to Goldwater Republicans kind of, you know, rebelled against the tyranny of expertise, which is, yeah, also something that happened in, in a different way in, in, in China in the 1960s, but with, you know, decidedly different lessons drawn. I mean, it was sort of a reassertion of the expertise. The Reds were in eclipse, the experts in ascent, and we get things like Pudong, right? I mean, it's... I mean, I, I think that we have to be careful, like, to... Urban planning, you know, has its merits. Like, we were just praising these high-speed trains and, and, and the subway systems, like... You know, I'm very familiar with the amazing 
Shanghai subway system. It is amazing. Um, and, and the Beijing system is, is now amazing, Beijing, too. Yeah, I, it never I, used I was, to be, but yeah, it is now. Yeah, I don't know how... I mean, I don't, uh, if you uh, don't mind being a sardine, but in terms of being able to get around the, the city, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I don't know how recent the Beijing... You know, it's not even sardine-like since the price increase. Yeah. Well, it's really, really comfortable. Really? Yeah, it's well, cool. I like Didi Dacha Drancha myself, <laughs> but... Um, I'm an Uberman myself. Uh, yes, yeah. right, you would be. But when yeah, when I went to came to Shanghai, there was only two subway lines, and now there's like they're building line sixteen or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of level of infrastructure, it you know, I think the urban planners have been really great at. Um, and you know, part of the sort of structure of Pudong, when Pudong was planned, uh, there was I think two ferries that, um, you know cross the river uh-huh. and now there is you know multiple bridges and tunnels and subway lines and whatever so uh, the making of a new center of Shanghai has to a large extent worked right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but there is something yeah of course very unfriendly and, and inhuman about it so um, to take us through the the, the, the planet I mean uh, the plan of the book starts with 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 the yang of of, of Pudong. Let's talk about the, the the yin of Pusi, and I think some of the very different takes on modernity and futurism that are expressed there. One idea that I really loved, I think, was this the idea of Gothic futurism, the creation of these these um, clusters out of old factories that were supposed to draw this creative class. I mean, but the, the, let's start with the aesthetic. It's like, you know, I, you know, I'm a metal guy. I'm, I'm kind of down with you know like grimy gargoyles as opposed to sort of, you know, white alabaster or, or, right. or marble right. Greco-Roman. Right, so that's gods. the, like, Blade Runner, uh, Gibson kind of cyberpunk future as opposed to the sort of Hugo Gernsbecker exactly. uh, kind of um, shiny futurism of, of science fiction. And, yeah, Gothic, I think, is a very interesting movement in, in the West and as being this kind of counter to modernity uh, to the sort of progressivism of modernity of the West, um, you know, to uh, and and both architecturally and in terms of its tales. Uh, so it has this amazing story of this guy Walpole who bought this weird villa outside London and uh, redesigned it in Gothic style, and then once it was redesigned, had this nightmare, uh, and then wrote that down as a story uh, called The Castle of Ostranto or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that sort really, of like Lovecraftian. Yeah, I think it was like a, ba- like, I think Lovecraft says it's the beginning of the Gothic revival and the beginning of sort of stories of the weird, but it uh, uh, is not apparently very good. I haven't actually read it. But but how fucking trippy is it that, that this then becomes the, uh, uh, the future aesthetic that, Shanghai is going back to in the search of its its future. And so I think that there is a futurism that's very bound up to that, right? Metropolis, yeah. uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Batman, uh, Batman, Blade Runner, this kind of futurism, right? And so uh, you know, to me, the pushy side has much more of that, right? In the deco style buildings and the narrow lanes and the, um, you know, uh, I think the the scene from Blade Runner that is most relevant is that one where it sort of starts with the 
a uh, Japanese woman. On yeah, the and then but it, then it it pans down to this kind of noodle bar, right? That's where Deckard's in the noodle bar, and um, so it has that kind of street life right. as well as sushi. The, but but isn't isn't it in Shanghai the, the reason why Shanghai? I mean, Beijing is sometimes played around, but why Shanghai really does it is because you have Pusi, where you have that street life. And then you look up and you see Pudong. Isn't it the mixture? Yeah. That's th- the yin and yang. Yeah, about, I think right? that that mixture is really important. And But but I think the mixture, um, you know, the mixture is threatened, right? Because there's this kind of pull towards the, like, let's wipe out all the noodle bars. Right. And just have Stick that. in some convenience stores. <laughs> yeah. Which pay yeah. more tax. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's uh, just yeah. I mean, so much better than, I mean, you, you described in, going back to section one in, in part one in chapter three, you you're on about uh, Pudong is a fucking Potemkin village, and it's contemptible. I mean, it is right. I mean, are we are we okay with that description? I'm 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 pretty. Okay. I mean, I think that is definitely the criticism of Pudong. I think it's like slightly more complicated than that. Like I did try to walk Pudong in 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 writing the book and. There are, but you talk about that, that you know how frustrated you. I mean, there are yeah, parts right. where you simply cannot go right. on foot. Right. You, there are, but there are still, but there are neighborhoods. You know, that Century Avenue, which is the main boulevard, uh, was planned as a Champs Elysee, but it like had to be. I, I think like the China style, like whatever slightly wider, you know, yeah. um, like, uh, I don't know. A, a few here. millimeters wider yeah, yeah, than yeah, the Chantilly yeah. yeah. okay. uh, So it's kind of, you know, that it definitely has that. But there are sort of hidden kind of uh, corners to Pudong, to Pudong as well. So, um, you know, I think that I'm not, um, I think even in Pudong, you know, the street finds its way um, into things. But can I ask you a question about sort of Chinese street life and our Western imagination of it? Because I think before I came to China, my impression of the Orient, you know, the East, but <laughs> China uh, was uh, one of the things was this very active street life and, you know, Hong Kong kind of thing, Blade Runner kind of thing. In Blade Runner itself, the people making the street life are Chinese and Chinese are very good at making street life. Well, they're, they're indeterminate Asian. Right. Yeah, indeterminate Asian, right, fair enough. East Asian. Let's just, you know, bring it down to, like, bold stereotypes, you know, East sure. Asians, okay. Um, but in China, uh, that is the case when people are just allowed to run businesses. But it seems that the, at least the official culture is so hostile to that. But Chinese people do it so well, you know. How do you explain that sort of so this is contradiction? Like, I think that, um, you know, this is sort of since writing the book, one of them... And, and forgive me for any, like, ridiculous oh, Orientalist it's, generalizations, I mean, I that, but I, I think there's something in the stereotype. I think that it's true, you know, I spent a lot of time in India as well. Like, the Asian metropolis has a vibrant street life. That's right. part of the way this part of the world does cities, you right. know, and that's what makes them great cities. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's probably true in, in other places as well. Um, but I think that... Uh, this, you know, I'm I'm right now really focused on this issue of that the vision of the future, I think, by bureaucrats and by a certain sort of mode of urban development is that is undeveloped, that is um, sort of backward, that is unclean, and we need to clean that up and gloss it over in order to make our city 
uh, into this future that we imagine it to be. And so I think that really uh, the need for imagining the future metropolis with street markets is really crucial right now. Um, you know, I'm sure the case is for you as well, that since I've been in Shanghai, countless markets have been replaced by shopping malls. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> all over the country yeah. too, right. All, yeah. um, do you think there's anything, if I may uh, propose a, a theory, that um, uh, China has been dominated really for a, a large part of the last 1,000 years by Mongolians, Manchurians, and uh, in terms of the way the urban landscape looks right now, uh, um, Russians, you know, Soviet urban planners had a, a big effect. Do you think things may have been very different if China was like two states, you know, if the south, uh, if south of the well, Yangtze? Look, fucking look at Beijing. Do you know what I mean? Look at just Beijing. Look, at, look south of Tianmen. It's, mm-hmm. it's a completely different world, right? I mean, uh, I think you're right. I is a, I mean, you're correct. I think that uh, the story of Shanghai, like um, I, we sort of said, we weren't going to do a sort of Shanghai Beijing uh, um, sound clash or whatever with <laughs> a thing is, but uh, you know, this I think from a sort of architectural preservationist point of view, Shanghai is uh, one of the best cities in China, probably the best city. You'll in China. get no argument. From no, right. argument. <laughs> no argument. Beijing is run by barbarians, right. and even when they're not barbarians, they can't do anything they, because, uh, like, there's some other be. more powerful government ministry that right. sits above the Beijing, Beijing government. So, so, it's so very people in Shanghai sort of talk about why is that the case, and so one reason maybe is that it's split between Pudong and Puxi. So, okay, you had the modernist clean slate in Pudong to play with. So you could leave Pushy alone, right? That's sort of like story. La Défense in, in Paris. Right, right, right. So that's one. But another sort of story is people, like, because Be- uh, Shanghai was left till 92 um, and, and sort of developed later, there was a kind of recognition like they fucked up Beijing so badly. Let's not do that let's again. Let's not do that again to Shanghai. So there was some... The second mover yeah. advantage. <laughs> but I, I, you know what? I don't, I don't believe that. I, I think the true reason is that the Shanghai government is mostly run by people who have local interests and are Shanghainese, whereas in Beijing, the Beijing government is, you know, it's a, a place where people from all over the place cycle through very rapidly. Right. And uh, what I alluded to previously is that in Beijing, if you're in the Beijing government and you want to do something or not do something with a piece of land... You know, what if the piece of land is owned by the military? What if the piece of land is owned by the Ministry of Transport? You know, any of these ministries are more powerful than you, and they can just tell you to, you know, get lost. Yeah, no. Do you think that's a part of it? I'm sure that's a part of it. And I think that the extremely complex way that cities are governed, you know, um, and who owns the land or who has rights of the land or who, who is the sort of landlord and, and all that stuff really, really matters, right? Yeah. So there's one more topic that I wanted to get to before we go move on to the creative class and to these clusters that, that you know, these urban clusters that were, were created with, you know, a very mixed set of results. And that is uh, and something intriguing that you said about one of my favorite or modern Chinese writers, Lu Xun. You, you think that he sort of in, in many ways epitomizes that kind of uh, Gothic futurism. Yeah. Can, can you unpack that for us? That, that sounds really Intriguing, so sure. Gothic revivalism uh, in the West had played out in these two spheres, architecture and, and stories. And I think in Shanghai, um, you know, sort of probably a little bit suspiciously uh, claiming Lucian as a Shanghai, uh, you know, but he lived there. He died in Shanghai. So, right. Um, uh, 
you know, has this really gothic underside. And I think it's about the construction of modernity, right? Lucian sort of what is his role in sort of the May 4th movement and, and then how do you conceive of Chinese modernity through Lucian? And if you read his stuff, he has this very sort of dark, ghostly, um, haunted side to him. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and that sort of um, cheery progressivism uh, seems to me like just a sort of dubious facade and, and certainly not the whole story. The cheery progressivism or even the angry progressivism. Right. I mean, he, the, this guy, I mean, he dwells in madness, right? right. I mean, that's, this is, right. that's what, what's... I mean, he kind of gets how fucked up the whole the situation really. Uh, yeah. uh, great. I want to like uh, wrap up here by talking... Well, maybe the last section, uh, which I thought was really interesting, was about these creative clusters, about, um, you know, well, the Sudro Creek project. I mean, I guess for one um, and then of course you can talk about um, you know Xin Tian Di versus um, Tian Zifa. Uh you know so there, there was this 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 idea of creative class that emerged in that Richard Florida book that everyone has read you know uh, he talks about the world is not flat and rejoinder to old Tom Friedman and says it is instead spiky that there are these you know urban clusters in which creatives congregate and that idea has been uh, obviously ad- adopted by, understood by, tried to be put to work in Shanghai. So tell us about like Bridge Eight. Tell us about 1933 um, and other creative clusters. What, what what went wrong? Well, so if I can just go back for a moment, I mean, I was I'm really influenced by this book by this guy named Peter Hall who wrote this kind of can you, giant. I'm sorry, can you repeat the name? Peter Hall. Uh, Peter I Hall, think he's okay. actually like a Sir Peter Hall uh-huh. now. Um, but it's a kind of giant uh, book that argues uh, that history is made by these urban flourishings, these kind of moments of deep creativity that happen for sort of brief periods of time in particular cities. And so he kind of goes through history, you know, like Athens <laughs> in, in the time of Plato or uh, Shakespeare in London, you know, these kind of things. And... Uh, this question about creativity in the Chinese metropolis, uh, I really think is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, if we think about America's rise uh, f- through the 20th century and we think about its great cities uh, and what happened there, you know, um, New York and, and Hollywood and L.A. or Memphis and the Blues or whatever, uh, um, these great creative flourishings that really, like, shaped the world, um, and it seems to me, you know, if the story of China's rise is really meaningful, then something equivalent must occur or, or must be occurring or must, uh, you know, will occur in the, in the very near future. And so the question of creativity in, in the uh, cities, Chinese great cities, uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, is, is, is crucial. Shenzhen, I would add now. Sure. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, as is the case, I guess, here and part of the theme of the conversation, you know, this creative economy, this discourse of creative economy was really sold in China and very much bought by the government. And it solved a whole bunch of problems for the government, both about how are we going to, you know, this ambition to stop being just the factory to the world. Right. 
And also, we've got all this land that the state-owned enterprises own, but we've relocated the SOEs to, to the periphery. So there's like these empty warehouses and factories all over the place. What are we going to do with them? And so the creative cluster kind of um, you know, discourse was like this perfect solution. We can transfer them all into sort of boutiques and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for the most part, they are not really working. And I think it has to do with this very simple thing that, that you know, well, you can't order people to be willing. creative. Right. Gotta, right. We will have five <laughs> creative enterprises of a digital nature right. and three painting and, and, enterprises and, you know. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that, you know, as is the case here, like, you know, well, they did it through these particular tax incentives and then... I remember one person telling me, like, what counts as a creative industry? So there was one that was like a um, breast surgery company. And oh, you know, that's, that's creative. So who gets to... Creates breasts. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So um, most for the most part, I think those spaces are pretty dead. Uh, there's also a big uh, economic gentrification problem in Shanghai. I don't know what Beijing's like, but Shanghai has become unaffordable for people to just experiment in. So these spaces that you should be able to like, maybe I want to just do something. I'm going to rent a space and put on a show or, or open a little store or whatever are, are, you know, very, very expensive. Isn't that a global problem though? New York and London are, and increasingly even I hear people complaining that Berlin is too expensive. Right. Are you right. kidding? Berlin? Oh, my. Yeah, Berlin, I think. It's is. going the same way, man. Yeah. yeah. So you know, First the artists, then the gays, then the people with young kids, then the bankers, and then we're all fucked. Basically, that's how it goes. Right. So isn't Shanghai just the same? Or I mean, I know there's a particular type of gentrification because of well, the... Well, I mean, there are other people who would say that there, there was, I know, you know, a creativity deficit in Shanghai to begin with. I mean, this may be just sort of a cliche that's propagated by the likes of... Well, by the likes of me, <laughs> uh, by partisans of you know Beijing that denigrate China's you know much more attractive, I must admit, sister to the south. I mean, we, we you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I've been known to suggest that it's kind of peopled with mainly Philistines who don't really give a fuck about you know things truly creative. The rock band index probably is not quite what. Whereas Beijing is populated with Philistines who may give a fuck but can't get anything together. So yeah, that's, that's the difference, true. basically, right? I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of argument for Shanghai is that in this nostalgic golden period, it was immensely creative. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And it really did, I think, create Chinese modernity in a certain kind of way, like high pie, mm. uh, the, the, the Shanghai style. Mm-hmm. It, it did do this. So, you know, I don't think there's anything in the fabric of the city that is... L- Lacking creativity. I mean, don't, sit- don't you think that the the difference is that uh, and the uncomfortable fucking elephant in the room is that in that creative period, Shanghai wasn't being run by, well, for example, the Communist Party. I mean, yeah. I- isn't that a big difference that there was intellectual freedom? I mean, you know, people like Lu Xun felt comfortable in the foreign quarters. I know this is a very un-PC view, but I mean, no, why do Shanghainese now feel nostalgia that for that, that period of time? I think that the uh, that know. was certainly hugely important, that it was um, not only uh, sort of had all these foreign concessions, but it was itself anarchic, right? Because mm. it had multiple foreign concessions and the Chinese-run city. 
Mm. And so you could move between. You could choose the place where yeah. you could get away with what you right? wanted so to get like away with. Yeah. Why gangsters were attracted. Yeah. Why revolutionaries were attracted. Yeah. Why. Um, and Two Gun Cohen. Right. You know, people like that. <laughs> right. My idol. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so I think that well, for sure... The, just kidding, the well-armed just, Jew. Yeah, the well-armed <laughs> Jew. Exactly. The wild Jewish gangster. The well-armed Jewish gangster in Shanghai. <laughs> um, Actually, and, that's, and that's Paul French I'm thinking of. <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the tycoons, right? And the proper, like, the Sessions. Yeah, right, the Sessions. And the, mm-hmm. So um, I think that, you know, this kind of... Um, in if we, like, a kind of Burroughs pirate city that, that Shanghai was... Where there's no strong central authority. It's a, You can find right. the place that suits you. Yeah, that, I suppose. Well, that, that is sure. very appealing. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fuck, I want to go live there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so tell us what I'm saying. So you, you, you talked about the high pie. Mm-hmm. There's this new kind of neo high pie movement, as well this new high pie. Um, what's what's the gist of this? How does it express itself? And is this is is that like is Sintendi uh, a manifestation of that? Um, I mean, I think that there is a sort of desire for that, uh-huh. and I think that if Shanghai is to sort of fulfill its ambitions, it must do that. It must be able to somehow um, reignite this thing that is high pie, which I think in its most abstract thing is just what it is to be Chinese cosmopolitan, okay. right? Um, right, right, right. Uh, and, and, you know, Shanghai is the trading city. Shanghai, you know, in this way, it is the New York, right? It is the, the place where, where modernity happens first in, in some a fundamental way. And so um, what is the culture of of that? And I think what's most interesting in Shanghai now, and I, I suspect in most cities in China, that there is a kind of search for that, right? Like, what is a contemporary uh, modern Chinese aesthetic that is sort of true to the place, um, but... Uh, yeah, isn't like, you know, as, as some people, you know, painting dragons or something like that, <laughs> right? Um. So, I mean, so I mean, we haven't talked about mm. that. I want to just finish off the uh, conversation before we move to, to recommendations. Um, it gets shit on by a lot right. of people. Uh, uh, what's your take on it? I mean, is, is that the inauthentic version? I mean, is, is, is Tianzifang the, the authentic, like, organic, uh, bottom-up answer to that? I think Tianzifang's pretty... Sort of over now too, because okay. it's just packed with tourists and all that. So right. it's sort of lost its authenticity as well. But um, I'm much more sympathetic to Shintendi than than many other urbanists. Um, partly because of when it w- happened, it was like '97, so it was mm-hmm. pretty early. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the place. Like when I interviewed uh, Shanghai people, they were really like Shintendi was the thing that sort of sold Shanghai to uh, the people of Shanghai. So uh, it was the first modern development that was like, we can be a modern development and not just tear everything down and build a skyscraper in its place, but keep something of the local uh, fabric or the local... And, okay, it's it's disnified in a certain sort of way. Uh, I, I get that. And, you know, I, I don't spend a lot of time there. But um, it's a hugely successful urban development. And at least they didn't fucking knock the thing down. Jeremy, is there there even anything that comes close in in Beijing? What what do you think? Obviously, Chenmen isn't a... No, no, there's nothing. Beijing hasn't done anything. And, I mean, you know what? I think I should just 
keep quiet now. Okay. <laughs> you felt another rant coming on? <laughs> no, I, I'm not sure. No, they, they did a good job, I think. I mean, it may, it may be Disney-fied, but at least... There's it's a sort of pleasant place. To, I don't know. Yeah, quite. and you can see stuff that is kind of old stuff, sort of. I mean, you know, it's not... It's not... I, I think it's a sort of interesting thing. Like, uh, I don't know quite why Chantman is so... Bad, yeah. Because Uh, they knocked everything down and a bunch of Philistines did the designs to reconstruct it. And then the the Philistines were fired by people who had even less idea (laughs) of a thing. And then those people were fired again. And then some migrant workers from Khonan built everything. So so (laughs) that's... Okay, all right. Well, if if you've taken away nothing from this, then, um, well... Go 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 buy the book. This is a terrific book. Read this book. It's it's I'm, I I can't recommend it more highly. It's 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 fascinating. It's 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 philosophy. It's it's history. It's urbanism. It's design. It's it's architecture. It's great great stuff. Um, and me even you know is not known to be like an enormous fan of the city of Shanghai. I, I I'm um, I I really am itching to get down there and, and sort of walk where you walked and, and see things through your eyes there. So th- thanks so much, Anna. And let us move on now to the recommendation segment of our program. Jeremy Goldhorn, what do you have for us today? I have something for you that uh, may have some connection with our theme tonight, but it's C.Y. Long's daughter, the uh, chief exec, much maligned and detested and... Uh, uh, chief executive of Hong Kong, his daughter, who is also uh, a controversial figure, posting on Facebook things like, you know, taxpayers are funding my, you know, luxury bag, whatever. There's an interview with her, Q&A in hkmagazine.com, and I suggest you read it, and I'm not going to tell you what I think about it. Just read it yourself. (laughs) Very good. Anna, what do you have for us? Um, So I'm going to... be a philosopher in this recommendation. And the philosopher that I'm most interested in uh, at the moment is Mo Zong San, who's a Neo-Confucian philosopher who uh, translated all three of Kant's critiques. And he's an incredibly... Critique of pure reason, critique of whatever. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. So he, I think, is the philosopher that sort of does most to articulate what is this Chinese modernity? Like that's his question and, and he's extremely fascinating. So if you are, you know, comfortable reading in Chinese, you can like go to his whole works. But if you are sort of unlucky or probably lucky enough like me that that I have to work for, with the translation, uh, a guy named Jason Clower has recently translated the late works of Mo Zongsan. So if you're interested in Chinese philosophy and checking it out, I would definitely recommend that. Wow, wow, wow. That sounds, that sounds excellent. I'm going to recommend something that's going to surprise nobody. Um, uh, I, I'm, the long-form piece by one of my favorite thinkers and writers today, Pankaj Mishra, who has been a guest on this show a couple of times. Um, ah, nuance on Charlie Hebdo. <laughs> exactly. That nuance on Charlie Hebdo. Uh, yeah, no, Kaiser, after, that, is a, that is a bit predictable. Yeah, so, so, yeah. Anyway, but I mean, you know, it's okay it's to called, be predictable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People like predictable things like salaries and GDPs. Consistency. consistency. Right. It's yeah. good. Uh, it's called After Paris. It's time for a new enlightenment. It's in The Guardian. Check it out. Uh, I think it's a very, very thought-provoking, very, very thought-provoking piece. Um, and with that... I bid you adieu. Um, Anna, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, you came all the way up here on the lovely high-speed rail train. And, um, and uh, wow, 
Portland. Yeah, Portland. come to Shanghai. Uh, I will. I'll I show will. you. Uh, walk the streets with you. Yeah, you know, get me a gig <laughs> down there speaking or something. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Jeremy, man. Yes, to the future. To the future. <laughs>